I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse and managing partner of Powerhouse Ventures. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our climate positive future a reality. In some personal What It Takes news, I've spent the last nine months making a little human and will be going on parental leave soon. So after this episode, friend of the pod, Lara Pierpoint, will be hosting the next two episodes. Lara is the director of Early Climate Infrastructure at Prime Coalition, the former CEO of Actuate Climate, the former director of Technology Strategy for Exelon, and a longtime friend. Fun fact, Lara was the last student to get her PhD under Ernie Moniz at MIT before Ernie became the U.S. Secretary of Energy. I'm excited to listen along with all of you while I'm in a delirious, sleep-deprived, but hopefully high-on oxytocin state. We hear a lot about electric cars, especially in California and in the San Francisco Bay Area where I'm recording this. But there hasn't been as much attention placed on electrifying our homes, which is a problem. In the U.S., roughly 20% of greenhouse gas emissions in the energy sector comes from our homes. The U.S. alone has about 82 million single-family homes, and only 4% have solar. One of the challenges of having solar at home is that excess energy generated by the panels returns to the grid, and solar alone doesn't provide backup power when the grid goes down. Enter residential batteries, which let homeowners store excess energy production to use throughout the home when needed, especially during a blackout. But installing and maximizing the value of home storage is complicated, to say the least. What we need is a home battery system and an integrated ecosystem of all electric products to make it easier than ever for homes to switch from gas to electricity. We also need software solutions to help manage residential energy production, storage, and usage. And that's exactly what this month's What It Takes guest, Kunal Jirotra, founder and CEO of Lunar Energy, is building. We want to power homes all around the world with endless clean energy. Uh, We're building what we think is the future of hardware and software products, such that we want to make it really easy for consumers to have uh, energy in their homes powered by solar, storage, have easy control of loads, uh, you know, EV charging, um, have all electric appliances eventually and take gas away from their home. In order to transition homes to solar within the next decade instead of the next half century, people need technological solutions that are elegant, smart and easy to use. More importantly, just like electric vehicles, people have to actually want to buy the products. I want every homeowner who thinks of going renewable to have solar and battery and control things uh, in their home all in one solution. After two and a half years of experimentation and obsessive consideration for the needs of homeowners, Lunar Energy is launching its first product. They're starting with a first-of-its-kind, fully integrated home battery system. So that's our first product, which means it's an integrated battery system with its own inverter, both for solar and battery. It's got safest battery blocks uh, and energy capacity of about 20 kilowatt hours. And it has uh, ability to control loads in the house such that everybody can get whole home backup. Kunal started Lunar Energy in 2020, quietly working on a fascinating array of all-electric products and software solutions and emerged from stealth mode in 2022, announcing their intention to provide energy independence to homeowners by fully electrifying the home. I spoke to Kunal about what it takes to build an integrated ecosystem of hardware and software solutions for home electrification. We started with his childhood in Mumbai, where he was surrounded by entrepreneurs and engineers. Kunal, going way back to your early days, you grew up in Mumbai in a family of entrepreneurs and engineers where education and sticking together were highly valued. Your dad was an entrepreneur and your grandfather was a civil engineer and your uncle was a mechanical engineer. What was it like growing up surrounded by engineers and entrepreneurs? Yeah, I think in some ways, entrepreneurship was my calling. Uh, you know, it, it. I just knew it one day I would want to do something on my own, uh, taking initiative 
doing things out of the ordinary, not sticking to the status quo was some of the things that were ingrained deep in me and working hard because, uh, you know, my grandfather immigrated from um, as a refugee from Pakistan during the partition and came to India. And uh, he had lots of kids, but but no wealth, no land, nothing. And he built his uh, sort of uh, he built his future by himself, uh, by hard work. And that hard work and and not taking things for granted are things that are entrepreneurial traits that were ingrained in me very early on. And to your point about engineers, yeah, I think I grew up around a lot of engineers, so there was a lot of talk around building stuff and having. Um, stuff produced and manufacturing. And uh, so I, it was very much not thinkable for me to do anything else because I just automatically grew up in that language and that environment. So looking back, I'm, I'm grateful for the upbringing and the family that I had because my, my uncles and my brother and my uh, dad, my grandfather, they all have made a a deep contribution in their own ways and they inspire me every single day. Tell me about your dad. I know he's not an engineer by training, but he did build a factory and ran a whole manufacturing facility. Tell me about it. Yeah. Yeah. My dad was uh, an entrepreneur since his early days and um, he had, uh, you know, in his prime time, he had a bread making factory in India. This was back in 1990, in the 90s, actually. And he he, uh, he built uh, India at that time was a different place. There wasn't as much entrepreneurial activity as there is now. So imagine in India where it was really hard to get, there's no venture capital, hard to get like loan financing. So in that odds, he built a soup to nuts bread making factory. And in that factory, you had flour going in and you had loaves of bread coming out every few seconds. And um, so there was a lot of automation, a lot of machinery and a lot of things to get done. And um, so I remember, you know, my summer holidays with my brother, we would go to the factory and hang out and and play around and also kind of help the operators and the workers uh, in, in times when you had like uh, – um, a lot of production to be done. We would pitch in and do as much we could. It was a fun time for the most part. What I took away from that is that, again, it was a lot of grit to make things happen. It's not just about the product, but it's the whole the whole life cycle as an entrepreneur. You just have to think of things that uh, normal folks in a job don't think through. Everything is your problem. So that I was I was surrounded by that, and then you're just. Uh, it also, I think that looking back, it just makes you a lot more resilient because you're not afraid of problems. You you have this tenacity to know that, yeah, tomorrow's going to have five more problems, but I'm going to deal with it. It's going to be okay. So I think looking back, some fond memories of working in the factory, inspired by what my dad and my uncles built. And I want to take their legacy and and make a bigger impact. Mm-hmm. Well, you certainly are. Um, in 1997, you took this passion for engineering to Nagpur University, where you studied chemical engineering. Why chemical engineering? Yeah, I think uh, there were many reasons. I think um, one was, um, you know, looking at all the different fields of engineering um, chemistry, I was pretty strong in that. I was a good student overall, so I could have potentially taken any engineering, but chemical engineering and materials science fascinated me more than, uh, mechanical or electrical at that time. Uh, I think material science at that time in India, that wasn't a discipline. So if you had to do anything with chemistry or materials, chemical engineering is what was, was available, um, my brother was a chemical engineer, so I think I had an influence over there. I had deep discussions with him. Uh, where my father's bread-making factory was there, that was a full chemical belt in India. There were a lot of refineries and chemical-making companies. So it was a function of a lot of surrounding and environment which drew me to that field. Um, and, uh, you know, chemistry and chemical engineering is a very intuitive field. It's like, it's like making food. Like when you make, when you cook something in the kitchen, 
you some people follow the recipe to the T, but some people use their intuition on time, pressure, heat. And I I was a very intuitive person from the beginning. So I, I like to trust my intuition. And I thought chemical engineering was the right discipline for that compared to mechanical, which is very precise. You build something, you cut something to the scale and you design it. Whereas chemical engineering has a lot of intuition and process engineering and and, and recipes into it, which which sort of drew me into it. So after graduating from Nagpur, you moved to California to attend Stanford for a master's in chemical engineering. And at Stanford, you worked in the material science department and electronics devices group and steered your career away from kind of the obvious fit, which would have been oil and gas and into modern semiconductor manufacturing. So why Stanford and then why semiconductor manufacturing? Yeah. Um, so as I was in my undergrad in Nagpur, um, obviously I went deeper into chemical engineering and continued to realize that oil and gas wasn't where my passion was. I didn't want to work in a refinery uh, producing oil or refining oil. Um, and I came across this paper in my, I remember in my junior year, about uh, how chip making by Intel and applied materials and all these companies in the U.S. were essentially a chemical process. Like you make semiconductor chips, you grow silicon wafers, that's a chemical process. You cut the wafers, you make chips on them, that's a chemical process. You do vapor deposition, physical vapor deposition. So it was very striking to me that that's the future. uh, And I always were fascinated by what's next. So... To me, I started looking around what how do I how do I help my chemi- with my chemical industry background and, and enter that area? And it was very clear that the US was the place to do that. Um, Stanford was the mecca for uh, all silicon devices. The Silicon Valley pretty much started from Stanford in many ways. So I knew I wanted to go there if I wanted to learn this skill and uh, I applied. I had decent grades and a lot of practical experience in my undergrad uh, that got used up. And I found myself at Stanford accepting me. And it was a dream come true because Stanford is really a place where, like you said, I was able to spend time in material sciences, uh, electronics uh, devices. I went in the fabs making chips and all sorts of devices did all sorts of experiments that I couldn't dream of before so it's a it's a it true to its place it, it's a very disciplinary field or a disciplinary place it allows you to experiment with a lot of different um, fields which is exactly how modern engineering is today if I look at lunar uh, we're a mix of mechanical electrical firmware software there isn't one particular skill the world is moving into. So knowing a little bit of everything, especially if you have entrepreneurial ambitions, it was a perfect thing because then you know enough about every little field that you can actually expand on it and and use your intuition and build on it. So I, 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 I look back and I think that was the best decision to go there. And it just opened my eyes to so many possibilities that I just wasn't exposed to before. So that exposure was, you know, I look back, was super valuable. So after graduating from Stanford for your master's, you landed at Samsung for four years and spent time living in Korea and then joined a startup, Thin, Thin Silicon Corporation, for six years before starting at Tesla, where you were senior manager of residential energy products like Powerwall Solar, Solar Roof, and then became senior director and head of Tesla Energy, a role that Matteo Jaramillo, who we mentioned, uh, was in prior to him leaving Tesla to start Form Energy. Were there consistent learnings across all three of those experiences from Samsung to Thin Silicon to Tesla? Yeah, um, I think all three places, if I look back, there's a common, if there's a common consistent theme it is about speed of execution. Um, I think, as they say, your early jobs define you uh, and define your career a lot. Um, Samsung Electronics in the 2000s was uh, a rapidly growing electronics powerhouse. I was in the display division making next generation OLED displays. 
Um, even though I was in the R&D division, the speed of execution that I learned at Samsung kind of stayed with me. And it's very gratifying, again, as an entrepreneur, when you see progress happening at the speed that companies like Samsung and Tesla are have have made it happen. So speed of execution was consistent. At Thin Silicon, it was a startup. We were always running out of cash. So you had to be creative and execute rapidly. And execution rapidly is a is a mindset. Not everybody's used to it. There are some people who are like, this is too rough for me. I'm not used to it. So for me, I don't know, maybe it was me drawn to those companies or those companies made me the way I am. But all three companies have actually upped the game for me on how we need to execute. And, and Tesla was the, I would say, the mother of all uh, companies when it comes to executing really fast. So I think I've learned that that trade has been very, very valuable. And at Lunar, we've done incredibly a lot of things similarly in the last two and a half years. We just haven't talked about it much. But for people who come to Lunar and see the progress we've made, are quite amazed at how much we did in the last two and a half years. Well, I'm very honored to be able to talk about it now with you and to learn more about the upcoming launch. Um, but first, after leaving Tesla, how did a fateful conversation with Lynn Jurich of Sunrun lead you to ultimately start Lunar? Yeah, uh, Lynn's a very good friend of mine. We go back a long way. Um, and she, um, as I left Tesla, I reached out to her and... Uh, we exchanged notes on how the industry is going. She asked if I could join Sunrun. And I said, look, I want to take a break right now. And I'm not sure what I'm going to do. But we talked about how the industry is rapidly getting distributed and decentralized. And we shared the same sort of future where, like I mentioned the, all the focus and the capital was going towards cars and electric cars and not as much towards homes. And she was someone who was deploying these technologies in people's homes. And she was like, oh, my God, there's a huge gap in good products out there. Uh, and there's a huge opportunity. And I've, I was the same. I was like, yeah, I've, I've come from a place which builds these things. And I personally feel that even that place is not enough. We need a lot more if we have 75 million homes just in the U.S. And we've not even scratched the surface of the world. So I explained to her my ambition of like, if we had the capital, we could do X, Y, Z and build these things. And she, at that time, was coincidentally speaking to Ian He of SK Group. It's a South Korean conglomerate. SK and Sunrun were thinking of collaborating and doing something in the energy space. They just didn't know what exactly that would be. Um, and I was sort of the third cog in the wheel uh, who showed up. And it things just fit really well then. They were looking for something to do in the energy space and someone to lead. And I came in. I was a free agent with an ambition to do something fantastic. And I we, we married the three Together, the three of us met multiple times. Uh, we all did diligence on each other, whether the third person was serious. And um, I wrote a business plan uh, at that point and presented the business plan to Lynn and to the SK group chairman. They both loved it. And uh, they both committed to put $150 million dollars. Um, for that plan. And that plan was to build the future of home electrification, starting with solar storage uh, on the hardware side and a uh, Durham software, distributed energy software on the software side. It was a very ambitious vision, but that's why they put the capital and that's why um, you know, you, you've got to have high ambition if you want to achieve great things. Hmm. Did you ask for that much capital or did they encourage you to take that much capital? Great question. I think it was a mixture of both. Uh, the SK group uh, is a group which is very, uh, you know, they walk the talk. They have a hydrocarbon based uh, history, which they want to change to electric and hydrogen. So they were committed to putting in enough capital as, as much as needed to make businesses successful. I think both 
Sundon and SK realized that this business is not for the faint of heart. It's a high capital business. And, and I think if you go back, one of the reasons why there hasn't been innovation a lot in the home space is because it's hard, right? And companies have, you know, failed because they haven't been enough capital. They haven't been good products. So they, it was a, and I made that condition also very clear saying, hey, we need enough capital to be successful because this is not about uh, a widget anymore. If you're building a full ecosystem, you've got to design it correctly. You've got to have manufacturing capabilities. You've got to have supply chain capabilities. You've got to have battery cell supplies. All of this needs capital. And it's hardware. Hardware is hard. So I would say it was a bit of both. Uh, it wasn't that I had to convince them a lot. They were actually pretty much on their own decided that, yeah, this is a space with a lot of capital needed. And in exchange, you know, they own a significant portion of the company. So, Most What It Takes guests have these harrowing stories of barely making payroll early on. But here you show up with 100, initially it was 150 million. It was 75K each. Okay. And, and tell me more too about, so I get why you wanted to just bring in so much capital early. Tell me more about the strategic investors and, and being willing to take that on early. Um, you know, it sounds like if you want that much capital, who else is it going to come from? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I don't have yet any horror stories of not being able to make payroll. Uh, a lot of my fellow entrepreneurial CEO friends are very jealous of me for that reason. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but I think, you know, you're right. Uh, there was a risk, uh, you know, people have uh, qualms about taking money from strategics because strategics uh, in some times may make decisions which favor them versus the company. Um, I think it all comes down to people at the end of the day. Uh, Lynn is a phenomenal entrepreneur herself, and she comes from this belief that if you empower good people and smart people, you will bear fruit. So she doesn't, She she's not a... Um, yeah, she, she just understands what's needed for Lunar to succeed. And she knows that the, you know, there's there's capital and there's uh, strategic advice that they provide, but I haven't been uh, micromanaged. I haven't been, I've, gi I've been given a lot of freedom. Same with Ian from SK. Even though SK is a conglomerate, they have, uh, they have a lot of sort of, potential bureaucracy on their side, but they've been extremely great with Lunar and being given me a lot of freedom. So while on paper, Lunar's investment could be seen as a little bit uh, risky, uh, but it's been, again, the, the proof is in our, in our performance. In two and a half years, we have 250 employees. Uh, we've used that capital to acquire the best smart energy software company called Moixa. Uh, they manage, uh, they have the largest fleet of batteries in the world, home batteries in the world. We acquired the software side. On the hardware side, we've built everything from scratch. We have a 30,000 square foot facility in the in Mountain View. It has uh, 170 people coming into the office every day. We're a work from office culture. And we've built so much hardware all the way proprietary from the ground up. And that wouldn't have been possible if the strategics had not put faith in me saying, Kanal, we, we entrust you with this capital and uh, go build what you think is the right thing to build. And I think they've been patient for that. And so you said they each initially put in 75 and then they doubled down and each put in an additional 75. So you came out of stealth mode with $300 million <laughs> about two years into Lunar. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah, I think uh, they put in a second round after they saw proof points of our progress. We had acquired Moixa and integrated them successfully. Moixa had become Lunar and uh, and and basically uh, started aggregating all of Sunrun's batteries. Our hardware had reached a milestone where we had enough prototype proof on what we were making. Um, so they... They felt the company was on the right track and they decided to put in more capital. Um, at the same time, you know, I tell everybody raising capital is not success. Raising capital is a milestone for you to make sure your ambitions can be realized faster. Um, but we have to be careful to equate that to success. 
I tell my teams all the time, we, we are successful only when customers like using our products. And that is that is a mission we're still on. But yes, I'm I'm blessed with a lot of capital, which which can be which helps me to not make compromises and make good decisions. And I, we've been uh, just to carry on a little bit more. That capital has allowed us to have certain things in our lab, like reliability chambers and EMC chambers, that would have been very hard if I would have been a bootstrap company. So we've we've fast tracked a lot of things a hardware company can take multi-years to get to with that capital. Coming up, Kunal unveils the exciting products Lunar is launching to make it easier than ever to electrify our homes. But first, a word from our sponsors. Span has been recognized by Fast Company as one of the 10 most innovative energy companies in the world. Backed by a leadership team that brings decades of climate technology experience from Tesla, Sunrun, and Google Nest. I had Span founder and CEO Arch Rao on what it takes last year for a great conversation about the future of residential energy. Are you thinking of adding EV charging, solar and battery storage, or energy-efficient upgrades to your home like a heat pump? Wired recommends Span Panel as a borderline genius app-controlled electrical panel, almost essential if you have a backup battery. Span was recently top five in Forbes 2023 list of America's best startup employers and just closed a $96 million Series B2 funding round, bringing total funding to date to $231 million. Interested in advancing your career at one of the premier companies in climate technology or getting Span installed in your home? Visit span.io to learn more. So you sold SK, Sunrun, and your other early investors on this vision of building an entire ecosystem of all new electric products, as well as the software. Um, Tell me about the ecosystem of products that you're building and where did you start and why did you start there? Because the suite of products is a lot, even for a company with $100 million. Yeah. Uh, So I think today, if you want... um, the homes to become renewable, you want them to be powered by solar uh, the, and you want them to have all electric appliances. The missing piece was storage uh, because obviously sun doesn't shine at night. Utilities are disfavoring solar more and more um, and they are encouraging adoption of storage such that consumers... Um, don't dispatch solar at a time where the utilities don't need them. And there's a desire from consumers to have a, you know, if given a choice, if you ask every American consumer, if the price is cheaper than a utility bill, would you want to live a renewable life? Everybody would say yes. Uh, The problem was uh, there was enough solar panels in the world and enough inverter companies in the world but not enough battery products in the world, which seamlessly integrated with solar. So what ends up happening is you had customers getting solar from one provider, battery from somebody else, a smart panel from somebody else, a charger from somebody else, four different apps. Uh, you know, Installers had to install four different things. The consumer's walls were cluttered in the garage and it was just a mess. And if you have this as the status quo, you would never be able to scale renewable adoption because this is only for the very determined early adopter who would go through so so much pain to get these things in their homes. So our problem statement was clear. I did not want to build a widget company because uh, widgets is not what we needed. We needed integrated nicely elegant solutions. So we, with that sort of philosophy and premise, we decided that uh, a solution of our mission became very clear. We want to make it the easiest to get solar and storage in every home. It should be the easiest. We're not thinking of a world where solar is alone. So we've already always designed a product from the ground up that solar and battery are just like two pieces of a puzzle that need to go together. So our system, as a result, became a modular system, five kilowatt hour blocks that install easily 
and integrated inverter to a consumer, it looks like it's one system because no consumer cares about what's an inverter, what's a battery, what's a maximizer. So our goal has been to, uh, when you look at our products, it's it's two basically boxes, one which has the battery and the inverter all in one, and the other which has sort of the, it's called the lunar bridge, which is the a bridge plus a panel, which has smarts in it for load control. So with those two boxes, every home can go solar, storage, control loads, have EV charging. And um, uh, and while it looks like we're solving four solutions, which it's a complicated product on the back end, at the front to the consumer, it looks very simple, which is what our goal was. And it was an ambitious step to have and solve for all these four problems. But I think it is a right step because the world doesn't need more widget companies. It needs more elegant, integrated solutions such that consumers think, this is a no-brainer. I'm just going to get these two things and it takes care of all my needs. With one app, I have all the control I need. So, um, And then... To your point, we raised the capital for this reason, like, right? I mean, I think if I didn't have raised the capital, then it would have been a different story. But we, the, the plan for Lunar was to do hard things at a really fast pace, hence the capital, hence the speed of progress. And, and I, think, uh, I think we're very close to achieving that goal. And you've described Lunar as uh, everything but the solar panel. So it's BYOS, bring your own solar, and then everything else Lunar has built from the ground up in terms of the hardware, and then you're also doing the software. That is correct. Yeah, that's that's a great way of putting it, bring your own solar BYOS. Uh, solar panels by themselves are a commodity, uh, and there wasn't any innovation we could provide there. So we work with any and every solar panel, any manufacturer in the world, you can use our product, uh, you can use our product downstream. Um, Our product is a DC coupled system. So the solar connects seamlessly to our battery inverter in a DC fashion. Um, Solar and battery, both are DC. They meet at the DC bus. They convert all that DC into AC. And then you have the lunar bridge, which interfaces between the utility and the home and makes the whole home a microgrid. So, uh, that is correct. You All you need is solar panels, and then you can take any home off-grid. Uh, if you want it, you can take any home which seamlessly integrates with the grid. You can become part of a virtual power plant and contribute excess energy to that. You can save energy. The lunar software that we have after this hardware is put in intelligently manages all the decisions your home needs to make with respect to energy, so you're never... We have this mode called the lunar mode. Once a customer gets the system, we want you to just forget it and it'll take care of your energy bills. It'll optimize energy for you and it'll make sure you never have an outage because if we are constantly watching power stations uh, who are like PG&E has APIs you can plug in and say, is the power going to go off or if there's there's a storm near your area coming, we automatically pre-charge your battery. So the system is meant to be very, very consumer friendly and makes it such that you get you get the cleanest energy and outage protection and you save money on your electricity bill. So it seems like a no-brainer for people. Uh, so you've got all this capital. You have this bold vision for the product suite. What were the first roles that you hired for? And in hindsight, were those the right roles to prioritize? Yeah. So on the hardware side, we knew that we had to build things from the ground up because there wasn't any off-the-shelf solution that we could buy. Uh, and that that philosophy was very clear that ground-up products design build the best consumer experience. So for that reason, I decided to hire uh, two key leaders who are still key leaders of Lunar, one is uh, Kevin Fine, who holds our, who leads our hardware engineering teams. Uh, he was my former colleague at Tesla. Uh, he was, in fact, uh, one of the early leaders at Tesla Energy Engineering. Is a great guy, uh, very humble, very smart, and uh, very determined. Um, and he leads our hardware engineering effort. And uh, I also hired Mark Holvek, who is our chief architect. Um, and he is a power electronics plus 
just controls guru and very good and very creative at solving a lot of problems. And both of them complemented each other very well. Uh, you know, Kevin's way more uh, methodical, organized, uh, you know, uh, people leader. Mark's just this creative burst of genius. Uh, uh, and he, uh, you know, he, he, he'll be hearing this, but he'll laugh. But, you know, don't give him people to manage, but give him problems to solve. And he's that kind of leader. So, and both were, again, diehard optimists, which is what you need. You need to be hopelessly optimistic if you're if you're you know doing a startup. So, all three of us were like that, and those two leaders led spawned quite a few leaders that we ended up hiring. Um, so then, the next hires were in our mechanical design. The whole battery block safety design was led by Mark Goldman. Uh, reliability and safety was led by Jason Hare. He's still the leader over there. Um, Conrad Murphy was joined as a systems uh, integration and firmware leader. Um, so hardcore engineering leaders is what I focused on in the early days, along with uh, Mark Rohan, who who leads our operations team, and he drives all things um, uh, supply chain manufacturing. So I, I set about building a team critical for first designing and building the product and completing the vision that we had, and then also executing on the vision on the operation side. And then also Jeff Barnes from finance, he was actually with Sunrun helping me write the business plan. And once uh, that finished, I, I, I invited him to leave Sunrun and join us because he was so close to Lunar from the early days. So I'm glad to say all the names I mentioned are still with us two and a half years in, uh, except for Conrad. He's he's gone to uh, uh, he's he's gone because the commute from Berkeley here was just too bad. <laughs> so yeah, I get it. I get it. What kind of tech roadblocks have you and that awesome team that you've pulled together faced in the first few years? Oh, uh, quite a few. <laughs> As I mentioned, our our ambition, uh, it was quite high to build all these functions into one product and so quickly. So I think the biggest one is power electronics. Like power electronics is a hard beast. It's a tough problem. Uh, I underestimated, honestly, how hard it is to have electronics and controls. And I also now appreciate how how good places like Tesla and Apple were because when you integrate mechanical, electrical, software, firmware, it's just hard. These things take forever and electronics designs, while there's a lot of modern simulation tools and uh, predictive modeling tools, you still have to have people with great heuristic knowledge and intuitive knowledge to build these things. And when you build it and run it, there's always some things that go wrong. So it always costs more money than you think it did. It always takes more time than you think it did. So power electronics, and especially in that, if I dig deep, uh, EMC or electromagnetic compatibility, which is again, to the listeners who've designed electric products is not new. But we got stumped with that challenge quite a bit on how to resolve emission issues for our products, which were now solved all the way through. But that took a lot of effort for our teams to solve. So fast forwarding to today, I'm really excited to be speaking with you now because by the time this airs, you will have launched your first products and announced them publicly. Uh, tell me about the product launch. Yeah, uh, we're hoping um, to have launched the product, like you said, by the time this airs out, and we're on track for that. The product launch is going to be the first time we tell people what our software suite, what our sort of product suite does. And I've told you as the first person today, the whole world would know now that we're building uh, a home electrification roadmap uh, with a first launch of generation storage and control all in one offering. Um, so our launch is going to be a, we're, we're sort of getting press in the lab in the next few weeks, showing them a product. We have a full product demo in our office ready with, uh, which demonstrates how seamless the on off grid capabilities work and how you can control appliances. And it's a truly smart home 
product. Uh, and after that, we will be reveal, uh, revealing a, a brand new website with details into how product is um, uh, sort of describes our product, the specs, the features, why should consumers buy it? There'll be a design tool where consumers at home can design the product. And then there'll be guidelines on how people can buy it. And our first uh, route to market is through Sunrun. Uh, they're our investor, and they're also our early partner in rolling this product out to end customers. And along the way, we will be also enrolling a lot of other installer partners who, as you know, in this industry, the installer partners many times are the people who are conveying the product's value to the end consumer. So while Lunar's plan is to be educating the consumer through our website and through our, you know, social media channels and through our ways, we'd also be working really hard hand in hand with installers to make sure that they get educated about a product and sneak peeks of our product to early installers have been very positive. They're quite happy with the value propositions I mentioned around easy to install, uh, integrated solution, less service visits. So there's a so. Um, so overall, we have two aspects. One is in the in four weeks from when this was recorded, we're going to announce the product to the world. And by early fall, we'll be actually installing this in people's homes. So our announcement comes about three months before the product's going to be ready to be installed in the field. Uh, I want to figure out how I get to sign up as an early customer because we just discovered a bunch of small gas leaks in our 100-year-old home, and we don't want to replace the entire gas line. We want to go all electric. So I'll be I'll follow up with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd love that. We, we'd love to put you on the beta list. That's great. Um, when you reflect on fundraising to date, what have you learned and what advice would you give to entrepreneurs who are raising now? So I think the advice would be... Um, Raise when you can, not when you need it. Uh, I think that's an age-old advice, which I would repeat. Um, uh, the other advice I would uh, say is that, you know, be very clear. Uh, you know, Lunars, we're always in the market for fundraising. I would say even though you've raised capital, I'm always looking around to see and connect with investors. I think have a very compelling story and be very serious when you're fundraising in the sense, don't make a half-assed effort. If you're doing it, go all in and do it really well. That shows, uh, I think investors, especially in this environment today, as we are, they're very picky, uh, but they will give money to companies who are good, sincere, and have a pretty good effort. It, it sounds silly, but a lot of people spread spread their wings too far and have like 50 investors to chase. And I would not do that. I would like minimize, identify who the investors are and try your damn best with them about a five to 10 people and give them their best. So you get the most attention. Um, th those are some of the pieces that I would advise. Have a clear story, be convincing and, and, and be sincere. That'll come through in your investing process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when you reflect on the past two and a half years since you started Lunar, what have you learned about hiring? Hiring is hard. And uh, I would say that <laughs> uh, when I hire for people, um, I used to hire every single person until we hit employee number 100. And then I said, OK, I can't do this anymore. Uh, but um, I mainly look for... Um, you know, why they want to join Lunar, what motivates them, what is their, I, I like to know a lot about the people and see how, um, how genuine their stories are or how real they are and how, how much they care about what they've done. Um, and I'm also looking for just red flags in certain sort of uh, areas that I don't find a good cultural fit. And any sign of toxicity or uh, just not a good culture fit is uh, is very important for me to know early on. Um, one thing I've learned is that, um, you know, no matter how rock star a performer is, if they're toxic to the work culture, they will always be a net negative, always. So 
And we had to learn this the hard way many times. We said, oh, this is okay. We can tolerate this because that person is providing XYZ value. It never works out because the negative impact they have to the rest of the company outweighs the positive that they can do because one person alone doesn't provide that much. So hiring is hard. Um, make sure, uh, you know, I think the founders advice I would give them is make sure you hire the first a lot of people so because you're setting the culture and you want to make sure that all the other hiring managers know and to look for the same things you want to look for and uh, avoid toxic people at all costs. And number four, you'll still get it wrong. Don't worry about it. Because <laughs> many times we're like, we did everything right, but still this person didn't work out. So it's it's all there's also a bit of like, you can't really figure out everybody unless they start working together with you. Yeah, so true. If you could go back in time two and a half years ago when you were starting Lunar, what advice would you give yourself? I would say, um, again, going very specific uh, to Lunar, not philosophical, that for us, power electronics has been just a hard, hard skill. So anybody working in this area, make sure you staff up your team appropriately. Make sure you get the right resources for that. It took us a while to find the right power electronics leader and build that group, which is now a very rock solid group. But perhaps we should have paid a lot more attention to that in the early days, then we would have made our progress faster. Um, so that's a very specific to what we're building. Uh, it may not apply universally to all, but I guess universally to all entrepreneurs would be try to solve the hardest problem first because um, that's going to take the longest time. Um, our second hardest problem was making batteries safe in homes. And we started working on that from day one. And the teams did a phenomenal job knocking that out of the park. So, um, so yeah, those th that would be a couple of advice there. Has your leadership style changed since you started the company? Oh, uh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I came from an environment in my last role at Tesla where um, it was a different leadership style. Uh, many times fear was a motivator and um, I don't like that as a motivator. So um, obviously uh, that Lunar doesn't operate like that. We believe in a company where, uh, you know, the way to motivate people is to show them the end path, show them why what they do matters and make sure that everyone knows and is marching in the same direction. Um, so my leadership style has always sort of stayed consistent, but one thing I guess has changed is I've realized how important it is to communicate the same thing over and over again. Sometimes uh, you think that, oh, I've said it once, people get it, everybody gets it, they read my mind, right? So, but turns out that that is a very important part of leadership is communicating repeatedly, frequently, consistently. Sounds very simple, but it's very hard to do because um, usually people, yeah, for the reasons I mentioned. So the, the aspect of leadership that I'm still getting used to is doing that repeatedly and often so that it becomes muscle memory for the entire organization. But otherwise, I, I routinely look for ways to find what motivates people and and make sure that I I can communicate and 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 and, and get everybody bought in. What we do is extremely hard. And the timescales we have are very aggressive. And my team tells me that every single day. So, so despite that, to get into this mindset of how can you achieve all this in such a short amount of time without using fear as a motivator, without telling someone you're going to get fired if you don't do that, that's a huge challenge. And I, I look for ways every single day to get better at that. I'd love to hear about your experience as an Indian American man leading a company in climate tech, which is majority white and majority male. How do you think about that? I 
you know, I think more as an immigrant, uh, I feel, I feel like there's so many people trying to get into America and I feel privileged that I'm here and I'm working on the most pressing problems with the smartest people. So I kind of feel I have an obligation to work hard and, uh, and I, I, I owe it to the universe. Uh, so I, so I just, I'm, I'm just very happy that I'm here and I'm doing all these things as a, as a Brown person of color. I honestly don't see that has ever impacted me, uh, to be very honest, uh, because, um, I feel America is a meritocracy and that's why I came here. The best ideas win, hard work wins. Um, and throughout my life, I've been rewarded because I worked really hard and I showed initiative and I am where I am because of that. So I think that's been great. Um, as a male, I, I do think this is a, you're right. This is a male dominated industry. Uh, we, are grateful for founders like you and Lynn um, and now Mary Powell, CEO of Sunrun, to have more uh, women leaders come in. In my executive team, we have uh, two awesome women leaders for marketing and HR legal, Grace and Marissa. So, um, but yeah, I think uh, I think we need, uh, overall, it's been, for me personally, it's been nothing but a positive experience and I feel privileged where I am. Kunal, I you know this, I am very pregnant. And um, by the time, thank you, by the time this airs, I think this baby better be out in the world. Um, You are also a parent and a founder and CEO and a partner to your wife. What is it like being all of those things at once? Yeah, uh, it's it's great. I think being a parent, uh, to be very honest, I was a uh, sort of a reluctant parent, or rather, I didn't want to have kids early on. And my wife, Purby, thankfully convinced me that it's a good idea to have kids. And it's one of the best decisions we've ever made. Uh, and I wish you the very best in your journey as well. Uh, Kabir, my son, is a, is a riot. He keeps us entertained. He's goofy. He's funny. Um, you know, it, it's actually on his own. Uh, he, he loves EVs. He loves solar batteries. And he already believes the world should be that. So he has high expectations of his dad. And, uh, <laughs> That's so, good motivation. Uh, the, pre- the, the pressure's on me. But no, I think uh, it's, it's great to be, uh, I integrate my work with my family. I actually don't keep things separate. So by, by that, I mean, I work on the weekends and the, my family knows that. And then I at the same time, I try to make sure that I'm there for them on key moments. And I spend a lot of time with him as much as I can. So um, I, I believe that um, and I and I hope I can imbibe the values of working hard uh, to my son and family. But um, it's it's been a great thing. It's sometimes hard juggling all these different things. But I'm very blessed to have a very understanding wife. Purby's amazing. She gives me a lot of freedom to do what I want to do. Uh, and also uh, is very understanding and, and is, a, is my best friend. So I, I'm, I'm lucky in all respects. I have a great wife, a great son, and a good family. In addition to the product suite that you're launching shortly, what are the other products that you envision building from the ground up uh, in the next, you know, maybe three to five years? Yeah, um, I think we have a very compelling solution for EV charging uh, compared to what we're building now. To be honest, EV charging is fairly simple, but there are even simpler ways to make consumers get it, such that I can call our offering generation, storage, control, and charging in one. Um, so EV charging, both AC and even potentially DC charging for the home is something that we want to build. Um we have a small team exploring the future of heat pumps. Um, again, I think uh, there's a lot of attention and excitement of heat pumps, um, but installation costs for consumers in the U.S. is still pretty high. is variable from three to fifteen grand depending on the home. Um, one of the problems we've solved really well with solar and storage is we've cut the installation times drastically. We know the home really well. So on heat pumps, we're looking at two things. Uh, and conceptually, again, this is, I want to be caveated that we're far away from having a product, but 
uh, we're looking at a very distributed product, which is not many splits, it's not centralized, and it's super easy to install for every home. Um, so that's the heat pumps is where we charging and heat pumps and uh, even faster ways for installing solar batteries are the few different product suites we'd be working on from the ground up. Induction stoves, maybe, but I think uh, there's quite a few good solutions out there today. So uh, one thing is that Lunar doesn't want to build something where good solutions exist. I, I want to build something where we're actually making a difference, either by a better experience for the consumer or for the installer. So that, that's been our philosophy when we start new products. When you zoom out, what will the future of home electrification look like in a decade? Great question. I think in in a decade, I think 50% of homes uh, in the U.S., I hope, would have solar and storage. And uh, these things, uh, electrification products, should just be like how appliances are in people's homes. And um, I I really wish to, uh, yeah, so I I think it would be, um, and the trends are there. Consumers want it. It's uh, the products need to get simpler. Um, we would be looking back at this decade and saying, "Yeah, it's a no-brainer. The sun shines. Uh, you got to generate clean energy, and every home should have it." Um, so I, I think it would be we will be solving some different problem ten years from now. And last question before we transition to our high voltage round: If Lunar Energy succeeds, what does the company look like in a decade? If we succeed, we will be one of the most influential energy companies in a decade. That's my ambition. Uh, we, and, and that's just a philosophical ambition. But at the end, success for Lunar should be that everybody who uses a product, be it a consumer or a B2B software provider, they should all say this is one of the best products I've ever used. I think that satisfaction is what I'm craving for. Um, And then if we do that, then success will eventually happen. Um, But I do want us to be one of the most influential companies uh, in the next decade for energy. Hmm. Well, you're only two and a half years in and have already done so much. So I believe that 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 is very much a possibility. All right. So we're going to Close with our high voltage round. These are quick questions, quick answers, quick like a few second answers. Starting with Kunal, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? I would pick a horse. I think horse has uh, a lot of stamina, which is kind of what you need to to be successful in a startup. Uh, I don't. I can't ride a horse, but I would still pick a horse. So, yeah. Nice. I think you might be our first what it takes horse. Yeah. <laughs> what inspires you? Um, I think, I think people who are highly productive and are, you know, net contributors to society, they inspire me. I mean, you and what you do inspire me. There's lots of other people I hang out, inspire me, but I get inspired by, by people who want to make a difference that, that really keeps me up. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? I would, I would not, uh, I would not change anything. I love what I'm doing. I would do exactly this. <laughs> what if you uh, had to? I would. I would probably do do become an entrepreneur sooner. Uh, but no, I. I think this is. This is what I would do. I don't want to change anything. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll. I'll let it. I'll let it stand. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? I think two people, my wife, Purby, and my brother, Couple, uh, they both are my best friends. They both know my, they both know me inside out, uh, complete, uh, you know, uh, how I, yeah, my fears, my vulnerabilities, my ambitions. So yeah, those two people I owe my gratitude to. Tell me about a specific time that you failed. I know this is going to sound very generic, but I actually failed. No, I, you can't say every day. I, you can't I, say yeah, it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone yeah, tries that. Um, <laughs> uh, so actually, this is interesting. I mean, maybe this is a long answer. Not many people know this, but before I joined Tesla, Lunar, I, st- I tried to start Lunar back then. Uh, between TenSilicon, my startup, and, and Tesla, I, I wanted to start exactly like Lunar, and I, I failed miserably. 
because A, I wasn't ready. B, I didn't have the experience. I was a material science engineer for the last 12 years. Uh, before joining Tesla, I had no product market experience. I had no contacts and investors. So I, it was just a drastic, you know, uh, my wife, Purby, told me, you know, go get a job. You don't you're not ready for this. Um, so I think that was a that was a big learning that you need to have the right skills because from a, transitioning from an engineer to a entrepreneur, while it was in my bones, I still needed quite a bit of exposure to product markets that I got at Tesla and I was very privileged for. So that that was one time that I did fail. It's a great answer. What lesson has taken the longest to learn? I think I mentioned this before that um, don't uh, tolerate toxicity in workplace um, and in in guise of performance. And when you're desperate for progress as a startup founder, you've got to make difficult choices. And you're like, oh, if this person leaves, how will I do this, this, this? But take that hard decision. It's okay. You'll have a couple of weeks of no progress, but that's you'd be far better off. It It's always this temptation of short term that I have to tell myself that, no, it's done. We're not going to do this. So that that part took me longer than I should have. So I've heard it described as it's better to have a hole in the position, like the position is unfilled, than to have an a-hole in the job. <laughs> That's what Elon would tell me all the time. <laughs> what is the best investment you've ever made? I think my, uh, and this is true, my, I invest a lot of time in my close friends and family members. And, you know, I have a lot of extended family and cousins here, and I believe in spending time with them. They, they ground me, they keep me. Um, so I think that investment, more than any monetary investment of time, is the most valuable. What is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? I think when I was young, uh, there was a lot of like situations and circumstances are permanent. I would think that. And then when you get older and you get confidence and you achieve certain things, you're like, no, you can change things. You can get things out of a hole. So it took me a while to realize that, but nothing is permanent. And I think that's a very profound feeling. When are you your best self? I think my best self would be when there's a problem to solve and I'm able to contribute, I just light up and I'm very active and I can't sleep and I want to get it done. Uh, but I'm also very uh, excitable and fun to talk to then. So, <laughs> What is your worst trait? Oh, God, uh, I'm, 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 I'm a serial nail biter. So uh, that, that, that's, oh. Oh. <laughs> uh, uh, that's probably my worst trait. And I, if you ask me when was the last time I did it, I wouldn't even remember. But I've, uh, I've tried to get rid of it, but I, I can't. So <laughs> if that's your worst trait, I feel like you're doing pretty good. <laughs> if you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? I think there's a lot, it sounds again, philosophical, but there's a lot of polarization in the world. I wish people were a bit more understanding of each other and compassionate. There's a lot of the polarization is because of not understanding the other side and completely casting them as evil. Uh, and I feel there's a lot more common in people than the world thinks it is. So I don't know, get some more compassion, understanding that that would, I would love to have that in the world. Otherwise, it's just me versus you. And that's not a good world I want to live in. If there was just one or two people who were going to hear this podcast, who would you want it to be? Oh, my dad, definitely. He's no longer here. Uh, and I think he would uh, he would be pretty proud, hopefully, <laughs> to, to see what I'm doing. But I think uh, I, I miss him dearly. And uh, he, he went away a bit too early. So if he was here, what would you say to him? Um, I would, I would actually, uh, I would say I love him and I'm, I'm grateful for, uh, you know, he had a lot of ups and downs in his life as well. And I wish, uh, he would be around to see his grandson and play with him. So yeah, I definitely miss that aspect. Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because. I think of a lack of product market fit. If you really knew me, you would know. Uh, that I was fluent in Korean and I love Pink Floyd as an album. So. As a band, rather, as a band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a great comp. <laughs> Success is? Success is uh, to be at peace with yourself.
if I could have done one thing differently, I would have, you know, could have, would have, should have. I, I don't believe in looking at the past. <laughs> fair, fair. If the world knew me for one thing, it would be. I'm, I'm very loyal and reliable. I don't give up. Mm-hmm. I'm most proud of. Uh, my family and my team at Lunar, I think both have very strong values and I'm really proud of that. And last question to build a successful startup, what it takes is? Uh, a mindset that says you will never give up and you need to be hopelessly optimistic. Those, those two things are essential. I love hopelessly optimistic. I had not heard before, but I love it. And I'm right there with you. And I'm so grateful for what you're building and who you are and sharing your story with us and our listeners on what it takes. Thank you, Emily. This was a lot of fun. Uh, You know, you took me deep down memory lane uh, (laughs) of my childhood. I am a very private person, so I don't usually share a lot of that. So appreciate you uh, giving me the opportunity and I wish you the best for your uh, for, for motherhood. Thank you. And thank you for being willing to share who you are. Once your your baby's born and you're healthy and you're willing to come out of uh, your home, come visit us and see what we're doing at Lunar and bring your kid along. Yeah, baby's first field (laughs) trip. I'm looking forward to it. We'd love that. (laughs) Thanks, Kunal. Thank you. Appreciate it. Kunal Jarotra is the founder and CEO of Lunar Energy. Join us for news stories each month of founders who are building our climate positive future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse and Powerhouse Ventures. Powerhouse is an innovation firm that works with leading corporations and investors to help them find, partner with, invest in, and acquire the most innovative startups in climate tech. Powerhouse Ventures backs entrepreneurs building the digital infrastructure for rapid decarbonization. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund, that's powerhouse.fund, and follow us on Twitter at Join Powerhouse, and you can follow me at Emily Kirsch. I mentioned at the top of the show that I am having a baby, and so the next two episodes will be hosted by Lara Pierpoint. Whether you are a first-time or long-time listener, you can support the show by giving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. We read and appreciate every single review, and we read some of them on the show. And if you have a friend or colleague who you think might love this episode, please send them the link. I'm our executive editor, Isabel Lee and Sam Woolforth helped produce this episode. Brenda Hernandez is our engineer. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes.